Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, time out. Right now, it looks like you're sounding like I'm a complete liability on defense. Yeah. I don't want people to think we're totally crazy. Who is going to win their court? Great defense doesn't just happen to Hopefully you. Hopefully you are. You got the chills and the goosebumps and I'm not letting this guy score. Hello and welcome to the Lockdown Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jagacki, and today we have our first deep dive episode where we'll be locking in on one topic, one concept, or one technique. And today we are joined by Coach Jared Goldstein, my first boss and varsity coach of Middlesex High School going into his ninth year. I was his assistant coach and JV head coach for four years, and still to this day, he's a great friend and mentor. Now, Coach Goldstein is more of an offensive-minded coach, but that will be a great perspective for this podcast in these deep dive episodes. Coach Goldstein, welcome to the show. Oh, man, oh, man, what a defensive this defense. Wow. Coach Jagacki, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to be a part of this and uh, bring some offensive perspective to uh, the podcast. For sure. We know we're going to focus on defense, but we just released our first episode with Lita Forrest, and one of the things you found interesting in that episode was this idea of this no-help day one intro. Yeah, you know what? Actually, um, I'm not going to lie. a little upset that I wasn't the first guest. <laughs> Probably should have been the first guest, but... We can move on from that. You know, yeah, listening to his podcast was great. And I really loved his concept of uh, the first day, whether it was tryouts, you know, you had your team assembled and it was just like, hey, no help defense. You know, you're on an island. We're playing five on five, first or whatever you guys were playing to and don't help. Because I really think it's a cool concept. Honestly, it sounds like just like, you know, going to open gym and watching guys play, you know, whether you're going to like the YMCA or you're going to a high school as a basketball coach and player, you know, like. I know that I personally hate that. You know, it's like, where's the help defense? Where's the help defense? But I do think it's a very interesting concept, what he brings into, you know, your first day of teaching defense. Never thought of it that way. I will I will say it's not the help defense that, that make people question your defensive ability. I whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, time out. It, right now, it makes like you're sounding like I'm a complete liability on defense when I have to guard my guy. I like to guard the weakest player so I can help. I mean, I'm also the oldest guy when we play. Don't forget that. I am the oldest guy. Yeah, and it's always fun to see, you know, those poor to, to bad players scoring a lot and getting happy, you know, when you're guarding them. So I'm giving them hope. <laughs> Give them hope. Yeah. But today, you know, that's what kind of our focus is. You, you, you maybe do that no help day, but where do you progress to there? Obviously, you talked about when someone scores, it's not just one player's. Uh, fault you know it's usually two players the help defenders or your rotation but the better you can be on ball the better your team defense is going to be and that's why no help on day one is a good principle to, to at least introduce to your team you know you have to guard if you can't guard you got to switch the matchup and if you can't do that you better find a seat on the bench because you won't be playing a lot but where do we go from that right where do we go from helping those players who are struggling with that we can't just hey, you're going to sit on the bench, but how do we help those players go from liable to capable? And that's what our deep dive is for today. Yeah, so let's go back to our first year together. You know, when you're just a volunteer assistant, that was the year where I was just like, we're giving up so many lives. We are just giving up so many lives. Just there were too many blow-bys, too many blow-bys that were getting layups and then Maybe the lay wasn't from the blow-by. It was from when the guy would come over to help for the dump-off. So that was, you know, the, my, my biggest issue. Um, and then I think it was really that year after, after the season concluded, 
you know, you, myself, and our other coaches, we you know, we'd go out to dinner, and we'd have maybe a two-hour dinner conversation, <laughs> yep. and afterwards, and then I'd call you and say, what did we accomplish uh, after that dinner? And mm-hmm. I think it was after one of those dinners, though, that we decided, all right, we need to, in our off-season conditioning, we need to start making that more defensive. And that's when you came up with our, you know, off-season conditioning program. Mm-hmm. You, Coach Degaki, came up with that. And then when you left and you didn't to what further your career, you provided me with this packet of how to continue doing that. And uh, we still use it to this day. And I think it really starts in the fall conditioning where like, hey, that's just when we're going to create better on-ball defenders through through their agility and their conditioning. Yeah, right. Really started in the off-season. And in New Jersey, you, you get these restrictions where you can't even work with your players in the off-season in, in a basketball context. But when you think of footwork and, and defense, that's something you can tackle and, and really address in the offseason. And, and I thought that was a big key for us, building great defenders, because ultimately on-ball defense is all about movement. And the more movement patterns, the, the faster we can make those movements, the better on-ball defenders we can be. Right, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you, you came up with the idea, and I don't know actually how you came up with it, which is something that we should probably explore, where it's like, hey, you know what, you're in charge of this. You know, make sure that we're better defensively. So you were the one who came up with the movements and all that stuff, and I would kind of just go and watch that. And then eventually I came up with the idea after reading, uh, was it Win Forever? When we when we read that, he used to kind of give theme days. Mm-hmm. And then we decided, like, hey, let's go with the theme day on Wednesdays. Let's just do, like, competition Wednesday. And, like, let's just get rid out of conditioning. And, you know, but always, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays was, you know, hey, we're working on our conditioning. But... It was kind of defensive-minded, whether it was slides, whether it was just kind of doing mirrors, whether it was just doing defensive footwork with the uh, the lockdown ladders that you provided. Mm-hmm. And um, we started seeing differences, you know, absolutely, come season time. Yeah, and it's always hard to get attendance, you know, for coaches listening, that conditioning, obviously no player wants to run into the gym to, to work on a conditioning day. Uh, so, yeah, making it fun, making it competition Wednesday, adding different layers to it, and obviously building that buy-in in the off season. But when it came to defensive footwork, you know, that was something we could tackle. And I just kind of started, you know, through deep diving on my YouTube channel on different defenders and how they moved in games. Just like you break down shooting, right? I wanted to break down defense and mimic the movements I saw great defenders making. How can we just rep those out and get better and stronger and faster using resistance bands, using ladders, um, using different line touches, and then obviously learning from other other greats, you know, watching Patrick Beverly work out with his coach, his trainer, and his footwork training, you know, watching YouTube videos of PGF and his work and, and movements and um, you know, all that to kind of ties together, but that's really where it starts in the off season. Because if you're not in shape, you're not you're gonna have a hard time guarding. You know, so that's number one. That was a that, that's a coach Jagaki coach Jagaki staple. You know, if you aren't in shape, it doesn't matter what level, college, high school, probably not gonna be on Coach Jagaki's all defensive <laughs> team. He used to always say that. I mean, you know, I think my favorite quote, you know, to start conditioning days was. Uh, you know, hey, what do you do more than anything in basketball? Yeah. You know, some players, oh, dribble. No. Oh, pass. No. Oh, you, you cut. No. No, no, no. But close, you run. So let's make sure we're really good at running. And this is, you know, in case for anybody's wondering, you know, this, this is what Coach Agaki used to do it, you know, with the stopwatch in his hands. So the players couldn't even see the times. Sometimes they thought he was lying. But I would look, and those times, if he didn't meet him, it didn't matter if he were .001 over. We were redoing it. 
And uh, yeah. there's a mental toughness thing. Yeah. That's another thing we should probably maybe tackle is the fact that, hey, being a, you know, a good on-ball de- defender is a little bit of a, of a mindset as well. You know, like, hey, you look this guy and say, I'm not letting this guy score. You know, hey, I've worked this hard in the offseason. I'm not letting this guy get by me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any great defenders who don't want to be great defenders. You know, it's not like it's just happening to you. You know, it's it's definitely a mindset like anything in basketball. I, it's hard to shoot when you don't really want to make it, too. You know, it's hard to dribble when you don't want the ball. You know, it's hard to play defense when you don't want to defend. All that's interconnected. Uh, but, yeah, you know, uh, players still get mad at me to this day talking about that stopwatch. Um, <laughs> but that's setting the standards from day one, right, and holding you accountable. And, yeah, it, you know, you're not always in control either as a player. You just have to give your hardest. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thinking about it, too, you know, that was the first start of our defense, you know, being a better on-ball defender. Come tryouts, we even started developing tracks. Like, all right, first thing we're doing in tryouts, one-on-one games, one-on-one games. You know, can you stop the guy in front of you? Who is going to win their court? Um, you know, these were time games. Remember that. So it's not like they can score, you know, 15 points and win 15-14. If you're going to win this game, you're going to have to get stops. You have three minutes. Yeah, and sometimes we only counted stops to incentivize defense. But, yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying, if you're a coach that, that thinks of that no-help philosophy, you know, a, a day one, maybe developing bad habits, maybe you're a little concerned about that. And just playing one-on-one or two-on-two, really maximizing the floor, you have to guard. That's all you have to do, right? There's no escape. There's no one to help you one-on-one. But I want to dive into kind of the drills and the approaches to developing those those good defenders, those good on-ball defenders. But I think before we do that, before we talk about the drills, the concepts to help those poor defenders become average, right, those liabilities to capabilities, let's first define what what a liable defender is. Like, what is a liability? What makes a bad defender bad? How do we quantify that as coaches? You know, it's one thing to say, oh, that guy just can't defend. But what is it really that is triggering that in our mind? What makes a bad defender bad to you? Yeah, for me personally, it's as simple as this, giving up layups. I can't, I can't, can't handle it. I cannot handle a straight line drive, a wonderful move, but you can't stay in front of anyone. If you can't stay in front of the guy and you require help, you are a poor defender. That's, that's, that's the biggest liable, liability on the defensive end if you constantly require help. Yeah, and I think that's tier one, especially like immediate help, right? They're getting blown by on the rip, on the first dribble move. Or even, you know, they're not even getting to the ball, right? They're closing out. They're just getting shot over every time. So I think that definitely kills the defense. Straight line drives, like you said. That's really tier one. Tier two for me in, like, kind of the the hierarchy of being a bad defender, I think, is getting faked out easily, right? Falling for those jabs or, or that, you know, in and out move. And, and then just having no activity on ball, just being a statue on defense. You got those guys who, well, my guy's not scoring. Yeah, but you're not doing anything for us. You're not, a, the, the guy who you're guarding is the comfiest player on the court, slicing our defense apart with his passes. That's tier two for me. Activity on the ball and just not overreacting to fakes. Is a tier, when we're doing the tiers here, right? Is it strictly on mm-hmm. ball defense? Because like I look at a, a tier one poor defender is a guy who just runs around with this guy. You know, this guy might not even have the mm-hmm. ball, and he has absolutely zero awareness. That is tier one, 100%. It's just like the ball just drove right up your back. Like, how do you not? Yeah. You don't feel that. You don't hear it, and it came right up your back. But you you had no idea. That is 
tier one, hundred percent. But if we're just focusing on on ball, yeah, yeah, let's just focus on on ball. You know, trying to help those coaches and players who who just need help making those poor defenders average, right? No one getting blown by on the first move, right? Tier one, tier two, no activity, getting faked out. And I think tier three for me, you know, I think that more goes to like a team scheme. Like they're not executing the the proper coverage on a ball screen or they're constantly out of position so they can't close out properly. Yeah, no, in tier three, I would almost say this, you're not a student of the game. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. what it is. You, You know, athletically you're there, but tier three, you just like... You're lazy. It's apathy. You've been given a scouting report. You've been told that this guy's a shooter. You've been told that this guy is a right-handed driver. You know, you've been told you're not allowed baseline. And you just don't let it happen. You know, you refuse the principles. Tier three is just maybe no buy-in. Right. No buy-in, no execution. Tier two, to me, I I agree. You know, lack of activity, maybe. Relies too much on athleticism. Goes for too many steals. Those are tier twos mm-hmm. to me. Like against an elite basketball player or, or a very good offensive player, it's not going to work. So yeah, you got to stay solid, right? So maybe maybe a gambler is a tier two for me. Gotcha. So so tier one is kind of a liability, blown by, you know, Ole. Yep. Can't can't stand for anybody. Yeah. Tier two is a gambler, and and tier three is mental lapse, poor execution, no retention, perhaps. So let's talk about that tier one player because I'm, you know, as coaches, we've all coached them, we all had them, and it especially hurts when, you know, that's a great offensive player, you know, that's a knockdown shooter for you, maybe it's a guy who who was a playmaker for you, and he just can't defend, and you need to have him out there for his offensive production, um, but how can we help that player go from liable to capable? What do we have to do to help that player improve defensively? We obviously had to come for the lockdown camp. Um, it was great. I loved having you there. You know, it was almost like bringing you back home. Hopefully, you uh, you got the chills and the goosebumps, and you said, "Hey, maybe I should come back to Middlesex and just be here." But um, you know, every day you would start camp with agilities, almost like it was fall conditioning again. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. he's back running fall conditioning. How cool is this? Why do we start, you know, defensive drills with conditioning? Yeah, well, I think you said it early in the podcast, and. You have to be in shape to defend, number one. Uh, and number two, you know, defense is, is mainly about movement. Just like you start shooting with form shooting, you know, you're focused on the mechanics. I think it's important to focus on the mechanics of defense. And you don't need a ball to do that, you know. We use a two-rung ladder. You know, you can get the lockdown ladder at lockdownhoops.com. Or you can just use floor dots or, or cones or, or tape, whatever you got. But, you know, the first drill, I think, is just learning fundamental footwork of how to slide through that ladder in your defensive stance, slide back, and without having two feet in the rung so you're not standing straight up. And and sometimes there are defensive maneuvers that require two feet to come together or a cross step, but that's not the base layer, right? The foundational layer is moving through that ladder with two feet separate in a defensive stance, and that's a muscle movement that's not intuitive to all the players. And, you know, even when we jump in there, sometimes it takes us a rep or two to, to really get a, a smooth flow through the drill. And then, obviously, throughout the camp and throughout the days, we want to add resistance to build those muscles, that agility. You know, some people use ankle resistance, waist resistance. you got a bunch of resistance options. Just like you'd get stronger in a weight room, we want to get faster on the court. Yeah, well, always week one. This drill is always in there. I love it. It's like my favorite drill because I feel like it's speed, 
It's strength. It's everything. That's what I, I like about it the most, I think. But, you know, where, where where did that drill come from? You know, I'm just trying to, I guess in my mind, I was always trying to just build those those reactive muscles. Anyway, the challenge, that movement of, of just moving laterally, that explosiveness in those lateral muscles. And just like in a weight room, you build, you build, you build, you add weights, you add weights. What are different ways we can do that with agility stuff? I like the, the waist resistance the most. Um, and a lot of coaches kind of prefer the, the resistance bands around the ankles or the legs because you're getting resistance going both ways on a defensive slide. I prefer the, the waist resistance a lot more because you're getting that resistance one way, right, where you're progressing through the ladder away from someone holding it or whether you tie it to, to a pole or whatever. So you're getting resistance training, you know, building that muscle, and then on the way back, it's becoming like this pulling, it's accelerating you back to your starting point. So now you have to do the footwork even faster, even faster than your mind probably thinks you can do it. So it's two things, right? It's teaching your brain that you can do the movement fast, and it's also building the muscles going against the resistance. That's why I like the waist resistance. That's why I like the footwork, because a lot of times when we're working with those liable defenders, it's because they can't move very well. Right, they lack the fundamental movement patterns to just stay in front and slide properly on defense. So I think tackling footwork day one, working with a defender, is the foundation you have to build. Yeah, I mean, and I think about it, and I and I, and I can go back through our, our days of camp. The initial work to becoming a great on-ball defender has nothing to do with the with the offense yet. It's got nothing to do with it. You didn't introduce mirrors or an offensive person until after all the agility work. I do like to progress to the mirror drill once that footwork pattern has become, you know, second nature to them. You know, it, it has to feel like your skin, right? Just like you do form shooting. You don't want to just run out to the three-point line once you're making a couple shots in your form shooting, right? You got to build that up slowly. So once we got the movement second nature, right, it's become a part of our muscle movement, our brain-body connection, whatever you want to say, uh, now we can add a live stimulus. So now it, it's mimicking almost a game situation where you're, you're not only reacting, but hopefully good defenders are starting to anticipate. And the mirror drill is my, my second, right, progression. Simple drill, right, you, you're on your side of your mirror, I'm on my side, and I'm just trying to stay in front of you laterally. And every time you break out of my body, right, on your side, you get a point. And we like to start at 20 seconds, go up to 30 seconds, build that conditioning. It's a very tiring drill. And then we switch, right, 30 seconds, and now I'm on offense, you're on defense. You know the score you have to beat. You know the score you have to get. And it's a very competitive drill, and it's also a live component because defense is ultimately in a game going to be reacting to live stimulus. Yeah, um, and thinking about that mirror drill, we start off the mirror drill, no basketball. Mm-hmm. Just stay in front of the guy. That's it. Stay in front. That, that That's something I always remember. No basketball. I mean, you don't add basketballs until later rounds as well. Maybe because the ball is a distraction. I, I feel like most high school coaches, hey, roll the balls out. Can you stay in front of the guy? You know, and then he's giving up baskets. Yeah, I think it's funny. You know, I don't think there's a rush to add a ball, especially early on when they're learning movements. And Also, I think it frees up the offensive player to do whatever they want, to make it as hard as possible, right? Because they don't have the limitation of a ball and, and their own dribble moves. They can move however they want, right? They can spin. They can juke. Uh, they can do all these crazy head fakes. Um, and it's really challenging for the defender. We add a ball, and it kind of limits the offensive player. But it's funny, because sometimes it actually makes them worse as defenders, even when the offense is more limited. And it happened at camp. 
uh, we added the ball, and you saw some defenders post worse scores in the mirror drill, and you're like, how is that possible? The, the offensive player is more limited now. They're not a great offensive player. They can't be, like, super shifty, and yet we're having a harder time mirroring them and staying in front. How is that possible? The ball can fake you out, right? That in-and-out move, that hang dribble, whatever you want. And like you said, the ball is a distraction sometimes. When your eyes start to lock on in the ball, it can trick you as a defender. And I think starting without the ball, defenders start to you know, intuitively learn where to look when they're in the mirror drill, right? They learn to look at their torso, at their shoulders. They don't start to look at the ball and how it's going to fake them. They don't look at the head fakes. They don't look at the arms. They are learning where to look to stay in front. And when we add the ball, sometimes defenders need a reminder. Stop focusing on that ball. What's your goal here? Your goal is just to stay in front. And staying in front is, is going to be determined by how the offensive player moves, not what the ball's moving, right? So I think that's, that's why I always like to, to hold off the ball at first. And then add it because you have to add it because that's what the game's going to mimic. And the more you can anticipate um, as a defender, the better you're going to be. But that's later on once you become a, a better and more capable defender. Uh, you know what I thought about as well? You were talking about you know, adding the ball and so on and so forth. A lot of the drills that you did at camp, right, were within a limited amount of space. 1v1 battles, just the lane line. You know, 1v1 box is just a box. You know, a lot of coaches in all the camps that I've gone to or even clinics I watch, when they work on on-ball defense, they have them going full court doing zigzags. And not such traditional drills that you would see, you know, back in the 1980s and 90s, you know, where, hey, we're going to do the zigzag drill. Mm -hmm. Didn't really exist in lockdown camp. No, the zigzag drill is, you know, some coaches hate the three-man weave. Uh, I hate the zigzag drill. You know, I just, <laughs> you're cutting them off, and then you, usually the teaching is you drop step, you slide, you drop step, you slide. And I think that's the worst technique you can use as an on ball defender to, to drop your hips like that, to slide at an angle like that. It just doesn't result in good defense. And what we require of those defenders is just the ability to guard their yard, right? Can you guard one yard to your left, one guard to your right? Because after that, it's such a rounded drive. We should have help. We should have time to help. As long as you can guard your yard, that's the focus. And we want to build on success, too, in the lockdown camp. We want to give players confidence. So if we just said, hey, guard this guy full court, well, they're just going to get beat, right? And then they're going to be, it's a track meet. Uh, so limiting the space and not giving the offense the full reign uh, at, at the initial starting point can give defenders confidence. Hey, hey, I'm doing well in this drill. Hey, I'm doing good. Building on confidence, and confidence is a huge part of defense. And and I think that flows right into the next drill, which is close the gate. And I know this is one of your favorite drills, but it starts off so limited for the offense. But this is one of your favorite drills. I think you still do it to this day. Oh, yeah, close the gate. We, we love it. Uh, starts with our gut check. Put that ball right in the offensive gut. Say, hey, I'm in charge here. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we set up the gates. And your job as the defender is to make sure they don't get through your gate. Um, the, the offense can go two sides. There's obviously a progression. Right now, it's just pick a side and go. Then there's, you know, you can add a jab step or a fake, but they still have to go one way. Then eventually, we add a dribble move in where they can, they're allowed one turn. And then maybe we eventually progress to allowing two turns. You know, it's an excellent drill that uh, enhances your on-ball defense because if you are able to close that gate, and they, you can get somewhat physical and draw that charge, um, you know, or draw that offensive foul. You know that that could that could be that could be crucial. Um, you know that was a drill. Obviously, you uh, implemented for us um, maybe year two as a defense coordinator. 
you know, we notice in the summertime and maybe, you know, in open gyms that these guys can't stay in front of the ball. So then we had to figure out, you know, ideas of how to really make them all better on ball defenders. Uh, and that's where you came up with close the gate. But if I may, I do remember that was a conditioning drill. Full, all, full court, one-on-one, -on -one, whether it was troops, whether it was Middlesex, we would do that as a conditioning drill. And I remember the players being exhausted. Oh, I, yeah, don't get me wrong. I love one-on-one -on -one full court. I hate the 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 zigzag, um, you know, controlled zigzag where you're going at an angle and then back at an angle and back at an angle. When it's, you know, live, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, that's teaching good principles. Now you have to keep your hips square. You have to cushion and, and back up. You have to know your cushion, you know. You have to sprint to recover if you do get beat. You know, that kind of stuff is good. I was just talking about the classic zigzag where, hey, you're going to start in the corner, slide to the elbow, slide to half, slide to the elbow, slide to, you know. That stuff I, I don't think is, is helpful for any defender. I think actually it's the opposite of helpful. It's hurtful uh, in teaching bad footwork. But, yeah, no, our players hated full court one-on-one, -on -one and, <laughs> and it's definitely a good conditioning drill, and it, it's it's good – it's a good reality check for some defenders, knowing you know how much they can pressure the ball and and things like that. And it's always fun to see the the freshmen catch the seniors off guard sometimes when they're when they're going against each other. Right, that that was that was good. Or maybe even the freshman that picked the seniors pocket I was like, whoa, wasn't ready for that. Um, yeah, but again, back to close the gate was not necessarily to just draw offensive fouls, but it was more like. Hey, you have a responsibility to stay in front. That was the big, the big component. That was the big takeaway. Your job, keep backing up and stay in front. Stay in front. That's your number one responsibility. You know, turns are great, but stay in front. I feel like that was your biggest teaching point. Yeah, stay in front. You know, a lot of coaches don't have never heard the term keep backing up on defense, but it is it is helpful, especially when we're talking about those liable defenders. If they could just stay in front, you know, at least they're giving up a contested two at the worst case scenario. You know, they, they have to wall up at the paint or contest a pull-up jump shot, but we'll take that. We'll take that over a, a straight blow-by. And I think close to the gate is, is great for teaching that. You know, your goal is not a scoring drill, right? It's not... You know, if they go through the the gate, they can score. You know, they, it's not it's not focused on scoring. It's focused on can you cut that player off, stay in front of them through that gate, uh, which really narrows the focus for the defense uh, and allows them to see success. Because sometimes when you do those drills, which I like to progress to ultimately, but to start off, if you just put cones at the elbows and say, hey, if you get through the elbows, you can score. Well, now the defense is like, all right, well, I want to force them outside the elbows, obviously. But if he does get inside, I force the miss still. I'm still playing good defense. No, no, no. We need you to stay in front and force them wide. Force them to through those gates all right, and cut them off. And so that's what I like close the gate. The focus is purely on staying in front and beating them to a spot, guarding your yard. And you have to use a cushion slide. You don't have to chest up every time. You just have to stay in front. Uh, and, close, and like you said, the progressions help the players because it's not just freelance offense every time. It's at the start. The offense can't do anything except for drive. Then we progress to some jabs and, and ultimately progress to more live action. But that's why I really like close the gate because it is so controlled and so focused on what our objective is when helping those liable defenders become people we can rely on just to stay in front. Uh, I also feel like one of your biggest teaching points with close the gate was 
no hands, right? Two hands, automatic foul in high school. Mm-hmm. Automatic. So sometimes maybe you can tell them to be sneaky with their hands, but really it was more about driving them out with your legs or, you know, your base, your trunk, mm-hmm. whatever you wanted to call it. A lot of, I feel like a lot of younger players don't understand the importance of their legs, which, you know, also probably connects back into our agility work and things like that. Exactly. Yeah, it all it all relates, right? And and a lot of players just when they're doing the close the gate at first, you know, the guy drives and they just shove them. They just put two hands on them because their footworks aren't isn't correct. Uh, and really, what they need to learn is they need to jump backwards and laterally to stay in front of that player and not drop their hips. And dropping their hips and getting handsy are, are the number one reasons they're going to fail at that drill. And it's such a simple drill; the players can correct themselves. They know why they failed, right? They dropped their hips or or they fouled. And then what you're saying about not fouling and fouling with the lower body instead, I mean, that, that triggers right into the final stage of helping a bad defender, which is being able to wall up at the rim. You know, okay, you're staying in front, uh, you haven't gotten blown by, but now how do you turn those contested twos into tough twos, right? And now we have walling up, which is you gotta, you gotta wall up, you gotta show your chest, chest the body, drive them out of their driving lane, we don't want to foul because still to this day, foul shots are the most efficient shots in basketball, right? Uh, we want to keep our hands up almost behind our ears, tall wall, and make a powerful wall. We don't want to just get hit and fall backwards and now they have an uncontested layup. Uh, we want to keep that, that wall tight. We want to be physical. We want to drive them off their driving line. And we want to foul with our lower body and make sure the ref doesn't see our hands fouling at all. Yeah, you know, the fact that you bring up walling up, I think, is really important because, you know, generally my teams tend to be undersized, right? We're, we're smaller, so we're not going to block a million shots, things like that. So, you know, you know, for us, we, we really try to tell the guys, hey, wall up. We are not shot blockers, right? We have to make it more difficult. Uh, it would be nice if we were shot blockers, obviously, but also shot blockers can tend to, to foul more, <laughs> which is not a good thing. So, um you know, we, we really preach walling up to them because we want that to make the shot more difficult and, and you know, we want to reduce fouls. Um, you know, you, you taught different types of wallets or different versions of them, I felt like, at camp. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think there's also walling up in help, but I think on ball, um, on ball, we like to call it chested, and, you know, every coach will have their different terms, but sometimes when you are a superior defensive player, you can just chest their their drive attacks right catch it with your chest and kind of stand them up you know not let them get any deeper if you are a poor defender and just have to stay in front then yeah you have to be a wall on wheels right yeah that's the term i think i stole from the celtics but you can't just be stationary you can't just be a statue a statue wall right a statue wall gets broken it gets pummeled through or gets separated from you have to be a wall on wheels active and that goes for help too you're rotating and help you don't just want to rotate and stand up right? You, you got to be active. He's going to make a move. He's a good player. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I think we covered how to help a tier one worst defender, right? Become from liable to capable, right? If they can develop footwork, if they can stay in front of a mere stimulus, and then if they can close the gate, stay in front and wall up. I mean, can we ask anything more from that defender? They can now stay in front. They can contain the dribble, and they can force contested twos and tough twos. Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing is you don't you didn't use the word steals. You don't have to get steals, right? You, you don't have to pick people's pockets. You don't have to do any of that, right? You don't have to get deflections. 
you have to make it difficult. Yeah, you're not always going to shut someone out, right? Hold them to zero points, especially great offensive players. But if you can make every shot challenged, right, contested, what more can you hope for? That's the biggest thing to be coming. If you want to get out of Tier 1, a poor defender, nothing easy. That's got to be the biggest focus. Like, hey, when I guard this person, their night's not going to be easy. Yeah, and hopefully we can add those players. We've helped the liable players become decent defenders, right? The poor to average. And hopefully we're adding in, you know, those great defenders we already have who intuitively understand defense and the movements and have practiced it through their, their coming of age, right? And now we're adding great defenders, good defenders to players we've helped become decent defenders. And all around, you got guys who, who aren't getting blown by straight lines. You have guys who are not giving up easy twos, not giving up open threes. And at the worst case scenario, if you can help every player add a tier one, you might not be the best defensive team in your conference, but at least you won't be the worst. Yeah, and I also think this was kind of a, a big thing we, we've always touched upon, and we talked about it at camp. We used to talk about it in the coach's office, right? I think sometimes we would challenge that person and say, you're guarding the team's best player. Whether it was summer league, whether it was in season, whether it was a scrimmage, you are guarding the other team's target player. That's it, you know? Uh, maybe we felt more comfortable doing it in the offseason and in scrimmages because the games didn't count. But still, it almost was like, you're guarding him. And if you can't do it, you're going to come out. It's, it's that simple. Then they started to believe in themselves. So maybe it was the challenge that, you know, you invoked in them all those years ago. Because I think we still do that to this day where we say, hey, you're guarding the team's best player. You're doing it. And then we as coaches, we would see whether or not they would fold or whether they'd embrace it. Yeah, I think that is a good point. Um you know, especially in the off season, because you really want to see what that defender is capable when he's giving max effort. He knows that there's nowhere to hide, right? You're guarding the best player. What do you have in you? You know, and I think that's good for coaches to evaluate. You know, we're going to put you in the hardest situation and you got to live up to it because a lot of times they know they're not guarding a great player. They know they can perhaps relax on the defensive end because they are an offensive player. But hey, listen, you're going to guard that best player. You can't relax. We need you on defense. What does that look like? Yeah, and then I, I think um, we kind of did it best one year. Uh, I, I can't remember what year it was, but when we when we made that challenge to that person and said, regarding the team's best player, and also when we would do that, we told them they were going to target player, they knew they had minimal help. They said, hey, I don't have to help now. So that also always made it a little bit easier for them to become a better defender. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Not only are, you know, are all eyes and the focus on you, but you really have a single focus, right? You have a single focus, you know, perhaps you're a bad defender because you're always out of position, you, you close an out late, you're doing all these things late. But when you have a primary player uh, and you don't have to worry about, you know, being in the proper off-ball positioning, you know, maybe you can lock and now you're there on the catch. Does that make you a better defender? And and even tactically, I think we you touched on it a little bit, but sometimes when you have your worst player, you, maybe you don't have a defender good enough to guard the other team's best player. So you know it's going to require your team anyway. So why waste your, your best defender? Uh, why not put your best defender on the second best offensive player? Now that player's locked down, out of the game almost. And now you have your worst defender who's on their best player, but is constantly going to be funneling them into help. And now you're guarding them with two players. You got your best defender on the second best option. So tactically, it, it can work out. It's very Belichickian. Uh, you know, me and you both talk about football sometimes, and Belichick is a big believer on doing that as well. So it can work out tactically too. Yeah, we've used that tactic a couple of times where where 
we would put maybe more our more liable liability defenders on, on the other person's best offensive player, but then we would put our one of our best defensive players more, more in help and say, hey, you're in help and you got everyone's back. And now when your teammates know, like, for example, that's the other thing. When, when we used to say, guys, so-and-so has your back, so you can get after it as much as you want. I think that gives them confidence. That gives them confidence to say, hey, I, 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 all I got to do is just do this. And, you know, this person has my back. And I don't want coaches listening to think we're, we're completely crazy. I mean, when we say the worst defender, I mean, we always didn't, didn't put our worst defender on the best play. You know, maybe our, our third best defender, you know, someone. But, yeah, sometimes it's, it's the most helpful to have your best defender on a, on a terrible offensive player so then he can wreak havoc and help. And it's also, you know, in the offensive side of the floor, we always talk about, yeah, shooter, driver, post player, great passer. Rarely do we talk about that on defense. You know, maybe this guy is better roaming and help. Maybe this guy is better smothering the ball. Maybe this guy is better getting around screens and guarding shooters. So there are roles on defense just like there are roles in, in offense. And I don't think we talk about that at all on defense usually. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like that's one of the things maybe we kind of focused on. was like, hey, you know what? Who do we think is one of our liabilities on defense? Let's put them on the other person's best best person because we know we have we know we have the help and if they have less responsibility for the team right and just hey this is my responsibility they can buy into that role. I also I remember this you had one of the best phrases. Hey, we're gonna put you on this person and you know that this person is gonna be a potential college basketball player, whoever it is. Well, imagine what these college coaches say when they see you guarding this person and you lock them up. Now all of a sudden their eyes are going to be on you. Like, who is this guy from Middlesex locking up this potential Division Three, Division Two player? Like, hmm, this person's pretty interesting. So uh, we always brought data in, into the fold as well to kind of give them extra motivation. If you, you're guarding one of the big boys out there, eyes are going to be on you, and it's not just eyes of your friends, your teammates. I mean, it could be eyes for your future as well. Well, Coach Goldstein, that wraps it up. And thank you so much for joining the Lockdown Podcast. Hopefully, we've helped turn some liable defenders into capable ones. And make sure you check out my Twitter account at Mike underscore Jagaki as I'll be posting videos of the drills we discussed in this episode. Coach Goldstein, thanks again. And any last words for the Lockdown Podcast? Just remember, folks, when you play open gym, it's first to 11, not first to zero. Thank you for listening to the Lockdown Podcast. Make sure to hit those notifications, those subscribe buttons, so you get alerted when the next podcast comes out. If you want to know more about Lockdown products, head to LockdownHoops.com. And if you want to get in contact with the show, email LockdownDefensePod, that's P-O-D, at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.